May your grace be upon us and bless us. May your face shine upon us. Lord, the earth has yielded its crop. And may we use it to bless you and to bless others. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you are good to your people. May we be a light unto the world. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We read just a few months ago with Greg, Luke 24. We have been in a study in the gospel according to Luke. For almost three years, we are in, we arrived this morning at Luke 2350, but I'm sure all of you remember that we looked at Luke 2350 to the end of the chapter. We looked at that Easter morning. That was our text. And I said at the time that when we got to it, that we would skip over it. Uh, because we had dealt with it on Easter. I'm sure all of you who were there remember that message, every word of it. Uh, but if you weren't here, uh, it would be a, it would help you to go back and look at this passage that deals with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus as they uh, bury the body of Jesus. We're going to refer back to that this morning, but our focus is going to be on Luke 24, 1 through 12, the resurrection. Now, this message this morning is different. It doesn't have three points to it. doesn't have two points to it. But we are going to what we're going to use as a base, Luke 24, 1 through 12, and we're going to walk through the resurrection. We're going back to that day, back to that morning, back to that evening, uh, before the resurrection, and we're going to walk through it. There's a great message here for us as we do that. We're going to use Luke. No one gospel covers the resurrection completely, but you put the four gospels together and you get a composite picture that is extremely helpful in looking at it in, together. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to walk through the resurrection together. Before we do that, let's pray and ask the Jesus who has risen, who was there that morning, ask him to speak to us about his resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, first, I just want to thank you for being back in this pulpit this morning. You know my heart, Father. You know how I have missed being here. And what a joy to be back in this place, in this sanctuary. I thank you for the healing that you've brought, and I pray that you would continue to bring that healing to my body. Our Father, this morning, uh, we pray for Ben, for uh, Billy Griggs. Uh, We pray for Jim Bennington, that you would speak to them as only you're able to speak to them. We pray for Frida Yancey, that you would speak to her, bless her, give her peace. Our Father, I pray that you would, with with all three, that you would cause them to look forward with anticipation. That, Father, you would continue to minister to them 
the power of your spirit. Our Father, we pray for the beginning of of the ministries that are so key to this fall. Thank you for the wonderful beginning we've had with the men's Bible study from 1 Corinthians. We pray you would continue to bless that, but thank you. We pray for the women's Bible study that will soon start, the Wednesday evening Bible studies that will start with the children. Forge has already started with the adults. We pray, our Father, that that you would bring your word powerfully to our lives and that we would grow in our knowledge and love of your word. Bless Tyler as he teaches this communicants class on Sunday morning. We pray that this would be such a blessing to the children of this congregation. We continue to pray, Father, that you'll raise out of these children, that you'll raise a generation out of this church such as Fayette County has never seen. Now as we open your word, we pray that you would speak. John Sartell cannot say anything that's going to make any difference in our lives. I don't have that power. And Father, you know that I know. But we've heard your voice in this place in the past. And you have changed us. And week after week after week, you have been changing us. In the very core of our being. And so I pray today that you would give each of us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart that knows your presence and a mind that understands. So bless us, Father. We pray that when we leave here in a few minutes, we will know that you have spoken. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. The greatest morning in the history of the world. The month of August marked, this last month, marked the 50th year of my ministry. 50 years. How many funerals, how many funerals have I officiated or attended in those 50 years? At only 10 a year, it's 500. That's a lot of funerals. But. Two weeks, two, two years ago, I participated in 13 funerals in just a few weeks. So it was a lot more than 500. I could tell you many stories about those funerals, about those memorial services. But in those 50 years, there's one thing I have not experienced. Following each of those funerals, I've never met the person we buried walking down the street or walking to my house or walking into their house or in the office, the person we buried? I didn't see them the next week or the next week. I, I never saw them again. That's the one thing that's never happened. None of us have ever walked from a graveside service and said, well, you know, we'll see this person later on, maybe four or five days from now. You know, at the house, maybe they'll drop by. The seeming finality of death is shattering to us. 
It seems like a permanent constant. Jesus had died an excruciating death on a Roman cross. Do you know that we don't find one person in the Gospels expecting to see Jesus after this horrible death? Not one. Look at what happened after his life ended that Friday afternoon. We're going to, the scripture sheets will help you at this point as we go back and forth between these passages. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, there were two secret disciples, came out of hiding and requested, they had the courage to request the body of Jesus, but they only, but they only wanted to bury him. It was about burial, giving him a proper burial. They spent an enormous amount of money purchasing 75 pounds of spices to use in the folds of the burial cloth in which they wrapped the body. But they were not preparing for a resurrection. You do understand that. They were putting the body of the man they loved into a grave forever. The women that followed Jesus since the early days of his ministry, they had followed Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea at a distance. So they knew where the body was buried. They saw the tomb. They saw the two men take the body into the tomb. So what did these women do? Did they set up a round-the-clock vigil? Did they admit, Mary, you stay here and guard Susanna. You take her place and I'll come back and take her place. Did they set up a round-the-clock vigil to look for the resurrection? Now, let's see. Look at Luke 23, 55. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath. They rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. So you're with those women. You're going with those women to the tomb. Are they going to look for the resurrection? No. In that early morning light of the first day of the week, they're not going to a resurrection. They're going to finish a burial. There was no expectation. There was no anticipation. They would unwrap the body, mix their spices with ones that Joseph and Nicodemus had used as they wound the body the first time. They would add their spices, rewind the burial cloths, and go back home. They would return home confused, yes, perplexed, yes, but without anticipation, without hope. That's Joseph of Arimathea. That's Nicodemus. Those are the women. Well, what about, what about the 12? What about the remaining 11 disciples? They are totally absent from this narrative. They had disappeared in utter fear and despair after his arrest. They were hiding in fear of their own lives. The Sanhedrin had arrested Jesus and been behind the Roman crucifixion. Certainly they were thinking, They'll come get us next and finish this. What was the response that the disciples had when the women came to them talking about what they had seen and heard? Look at Luke 24, 11. But those words seemed to them an idle tale 
They did not believe them. So here's a group of disciples. The women come say, well, we've seen. They thought these women were hysterical. An idle tale. They did not believe. None of his followers in this narrative, not one was expecting a resurrection. Now, there had been someone there at the tomb keeping a vigil, but it was not a vigil of faith looking for resurrection. The leaders of the Sanhedrin had remembered. They are the ones. They remembered the words of Jesus. If you tear down the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. They knew he was referring to his own resurrection. They knew he predicted his own resurrection. So what did they do? Look at Matthew 27, 62. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate. They said, sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And were, these, were they afraid of was a Sanhedrin? Was the Roman guard afraid of Jesus coming out of the tomb? No. They were there to keep the disciples away from stealing the body. The very story they were concocted, the Roman guard there was there to stop it. I love this. It is so much like what God does over and over and over again in his word, in his providence. The Roman guards posted at the tomb were the only first-hand witnesses to the resurrection. Do you understand that? Look at Matthew 28, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came down. Stop right there for a second. You see an angel, kind of golden hair, sparkly, effeminate features. People, that's not biblical. That's right out of the pit of hell. That's not what you see with angels. These were great archangels. There was a single angel in the Old Testament who killed, what was it, 175,000 troops by himself. That's the kind of angel that showed up that the Roman guard would recognize. Now let's go back and read it again. There was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and set on. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards, this was a Roman guard. The Roman guards trembled and became like dead. I love this. They witnessed what happened. God in his wonderful providence had him there. So what do they report? What are you going to say? What do they report? Let's read it. Matthew 28, 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city. While they were going, that's the women. Some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. They told them all that had taken place. They told them about the angel. They told him about the stone being rolled away. 
And when they assembled the elders and and taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, who's in charge of the guard, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The Roman guard told the leaders of Sanhedrin exactly what happened, all that had taken place. They told him about the angel. They said nothing about the disciples stealing the body. That story was concocted by the chief priests and elders. It was an impossible story. Think about it. A group of ragtag fishermen who on Friday night had fled for their lives, deserting Jesus. Somebody come back and defeat an elite Roman guard. But they were given so much money that they wanted to sell the story. So what do we conclude? There's one thing that cannot be found in this narrative. You cannot find one person expecting and looking for his resurrection. Not the disciples, not the women, not the leader of the Sanhedrin, not Joseph of Arimathea, not Nicodemus, not the Roman guard. So what happened? Now put yourself with those distraught women. Go back to that. The distraught women arrived at the tomb. They were literally blown away. The boulders rode back. There's nothing but grave cloths in the tomb. A man dressed in this shiny apparel like the sun tells them that Jesus has risen. And even the women did not believe at that moment. Look at Mark 16, 8. And they went out. What did the women do? And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing for any to anyone, for they were afraid. That's exactly what these women thought. These men, these women did not run from the tomb to the disciples saying, He's risen. They just ran. Scared. Let's follow them as they fled. Matthew records that they ran into Jesus as they fled. They fell on their faces. They recognized him. They clutched his feet. What did he say? He said, don't be afraid. And then he told them, you go tell my disciples. Mary Magdalene must have gotten separated from those women who saw Jesus because John recorded that she said to the disciples, she went, to, she went straight back to the tomb. She, did not, she was not with the women that saw Jesus. And she got to the disciples, and what did she say? She, she, she didn't t- say that he had risen. She said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Somebody's got his body. He was still dead in Mary's mind. Then Peter and John went to the tomb, and Mary Magdalene followed them. And she said to the angel, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've put him. And then Jesus appears to her. Just go home and read John chapter 20 today. Just go back and read it. You'll see it. What you're, 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 you're seeing these people as they wake up at different stages to say, he's risen. What is the point These women were not prepared for what they encountered. 
The resurrection was completely outside of their frame of reference. Just as it's outside of our frame of reference. Now Jesus had told them many times that he was going to rise. He talked about his crucifixion. But he said that, that he would rise from the dead. But they were just like us. We think, you know, we live in the 21st century. We're modern. You know, so we don't believe in the resurrection. God doesn't become flesh. We don't believe in, invocation, in, in the incarnation. We don't believe in the resurrection. We're modern. Folks, they were modern too. I've just shown you. They didn't believe in the resurrection either. Not one. It doesn't have anything to do with modernity. Jesus had told them. Remember he, he, he had told Mary and Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? He was certainly asked, had asked the disciples, he had told them about the resurrection, and had certainly said to them, do you believe it? And I'm sure, just like we give a Sunday school answer, when we ask if we believe in the resurrection, yes, I believe in the resurrection. Really? We stand up and say the Apostles' Creed. Every time we say the Apostles' Creed, we state that we believe in the resurrection. Those people would have done the same thing. But they had seen a man die. Their own concocted story of what the Messiah was supposed to do had been shattered. He wasn't supposed to die on a cross. He was supposed to go to the palace and reign. It was just beyond imagination. But we should not look at their unbelief and wonder at it. We all should understand their unbelief, for that same unbelief tempts us. It's, it's there with us. My oldest daughter, Jill, is in the congregation this morning, and I don't know whether she remembers this or not. But Janet and I were returning from Bristol, Virginia, Tennessee. Uh, we had been over there for the day, and we're driving back into the mountains to Cedar Bluff, where we live. And... Uh, this was before the day that you had these wonderful safety car seats that the children had. I know it's hard to imagine times when you didn't have it, but she was in the back seat and her feet were planted on the back seat and she was leaning on the front seat and I was here. It was, it was her favorite position between her mom and dad. Well, it was Easter week and I asked you, I said, Jill, she was four years. I said, Jill, what happened at Easter? She said, Jesus died. I asked her how Jesus died, and she told me that he died on a cross. And I said, what did that mean? And we talked about that for a few minutes. She understood the cross. She understood people dying. She had never seen a crucifixion, but she believed it was true. The children know about death. We try to, sometimes we try to shield them from such things. There's a story that I read by Ross Sams. He talked about when his neighbor's cat died. The neighbor's cat was run over by a car. The, the mother in, the, in that house quickly disposed 
of the remains before her four-year-old son, Billy, found out. But after a few days, Billy walked in and said, Mom, where's the cat? She set him down and got real emotional and said, Billy, the cat died. But it's all right. He's up in heaven with God. Billy looked at her and said, Mom, what in the world does God want with a dead cat? So Jill understood about dying. She, you know, she died on the cross. But then I said to her, but Jill, they buried Jesus in a grave Friday evening. And Sunday morning, he got up and walked out of that grave, walked out of that tomb. She looked right at me. I'll never forget it. And said, Daddy, you're teasing me. She didn't believe in the resurrection. She believed he had been crucified. She didn't believe he had, could walk out of a tomb. People, it is incredible. The church, I, I was educated in a very, very liberal seminary that most of my professors did not believe in the resurrection. They believed in the incarnation. And the church as a whole, especially in the 20th and 21st century, have tried to make it not so incredible so it will be accepted. The world and the church together has made up many different stories. Like the resurrection, it's symbolic. It didn't really happen. It's just symbolic. It, it's, it's springtime. It's about leaves coming back to the trees and bulbs sprouting again. It's about sap rising and the earth being reborn. You say, John, that's ridiculous. It really is. But I sat in a large, large congregation one day, and I listened to a well-educated minister confess that, no, the resurrection really didn't take place, that the resurrection is symbolic in Scripture about the earth being reborn and leaves coming back trees and flowers blooming again. That minister had taken the incredible out of the resurrection. You know, one day the sky is going to break wide open and Jesus is going to break again into our space-time history. And it won't be spring returning or the sap rising. And that minister will discover the reality of the resurrection, but it will be too late. If you're one of those who believe the resurrection of Jesus is just a figurative thing about the earth being reborn, go home and read these accounts. Tell me that that's what Matthew and Mark and Luke and John were saying. If you think that's what they were saying, call me. I have a bridge down on the Mississippi River that I will sell you because if you're dumb enough to believe that's what they were saying, you'll buy a bridge over the Mississippi River. Did the disciples give their lives for blooming flowers? and They died because of this. They were not expecting the resurrection and people, it shook them to their core. So yes, the resurrection of Jesus is not an easy thing to believe. We began by saying none of us have ever seen someone 
whose funeral we attended, we haven't seen him walk into our house a few days later. Resurrections are not rare in our lives. Resurrections are non-existent. However, we're not asked to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because of what we read in Luke 23 and 24. How does the story begin? How does God begin this, this great story? Go back to the beginning. Genesis 1.1. How does it begin? In the beginning, God created. God spoke. No atoms. Nothing material, no molecules, no quarks. He spoke and out of nothing, ex nihil, came a universe. That's incredible. Yes, it is incredible. All through the Old Testament, read it. God speaks over and over and over again to him. He said, someone is coming, someone is coming, someone is coming. He'll be, he'll be a great priest. He'll be a great prophet. He'll be a great king. We can read in the Old Testament the details of his death and resurrection. And then we come down to the arrival. Remember, three years ago we started in Luke 1. There's Mary, this young girl betrothed to Joseph. An angel comes. He says, Mary, you have found favor with God. And behold, it's there on your scripture sheet. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of your father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. There will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, look at this. The angel, Mary, what did angel? Did she say, well, of course, no. She looked at him and said, how can this be? I'm still a virgin. Virgins can't have babies. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And in verse 37, his last words were, Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. Let's go back to creation. How's it start? God starts talking about the incarnation, God becoming flesh. Where's it go back to? God's going to do this. How did John record the same event as he wrote his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few verses later we read, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. Remember that? Think about it. And that word became flesh. So, if he is the son of God from glory, if he is the son of God who became the son of man, the son of God and son of man, what do you expect of him? When he meets a blind man, you expect him to do exactly what he did. He didn't pray and say, Father, please heal this man. He commanded by fiat for the man to see. 
and the man saw. You expect him to do only what God could do. What do you expect him to do when here's Jesus and here's a poor man who's paralyzed and been paralyzed all his life? You expect him to say, take my hand and stand up and walk who? By fiat. That's what we expect. When his friend Lazarus died, when Jesus met the death of Lazarus, what did he do? Lazarus, get out of that tomb. He came out. And where? After the resurrection? I mean, you really expect him to stay in the grave? That's it. That's where the disciples missed. They got the first part. They were amazed. Who then is this that makes, can command a storm? We don't believe it just because of what we read in Luke 23. We believe it because of who he is. And because it's repeated over and over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. Where does the story go from here? He ascends, preparing a place for us, and then he returns. Think about this. There's something that's challenged your faith. He's coming back, and he's not going to be in a crib. He's coming back, and he's going to shatter this reality. That's something to challenge your faith. But it shouldn't. Not if he's who he says he is. If he's the son of God, do you really think he would stay in the grave? His resurrection makes all the sense in the world. His return makes all the sense in the world. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe you're, we're at the end? Got one more scripture. Do you believe in your resurrection? Do you? You sang it this morning. We sang it this morning. We're going to sing it again in the last hymn. We sang of his resurrection and our resurrection. Because he rose, we'll rise. You believe in your resurrection? When people come to your funeral, when your family and friends gather at your grave, well, they expect you to rise to live again. Paul answered that question. He said, of course. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I love this passage. It's so exciting. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe this. We believe he died and rose again. What I'm about to tell you depends on his resurrection. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. Now imagine this. He'll descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet in the Lord in the air. I love doing this. Next time someone says, uh, you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Yes, I do. And he's coming back. And I believe in my own resurrection. 
You can only believe in your resurrection if you believe in his resurrection. Paul tells us we're not to mourn and to grieve like the rest of the world who doesn't believe in the resurrection. We're not to mourn like the world does. Why? Because we've got a completely different world and life view. Death is not the permanent, constant that cannot be altered. It has been altered. When, our, when, when the world sees us as we mourn our fathers and mothers or as, or as we mourn our, the, the death of a child or as we mourn the death of a spouse, that ought to be a tremendous testimony because we don't grieve like the world does. When my father died, I was standing in the cemetery in Drapers Valley, Virginia. I looked down into that hole in the ground. And I said this out loud. I was just standing there by myself. Grave, you don't have him now. No, he's with Jesus. You may say you have his body. But that's just for now. And it's just the body. And one day Jesus is going to return and twist that body from your cold grip. He's not even going to let you keep the body. In death one day, I'll see him again. That's a different kind of mourning, isn't it? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I believe you do. And because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I can say to my family, don't you mourn like that when I die. You remember, I'm going to be resurrected. And say that to your family. You see, it really was the greatest morning in all of history. Our hymn continues with this theme this morning for all the saints who from their labors rest.